Well, good morning, Journey. Really good to see you. My name is Brandon. If I hadn't had an opportunity to meet you yet, I'm the Olathe campus pastor. And in just two weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter in two locations for the very first time. One here on this campus and one in Olathe and the team and my family could not be more excited. So we appreciate your prayers over the course of the next couple of weeks as we continue that journey. When I was a boy, one of the fondest memories I have with my family was sitting around a TV and watching watching game shows. We loved game shows as a family, and uh, and, and I want to test your game show knowledge today. Can we do that? Let's have a little bit of fun this morning. So this is designed to be a little bit, uh, well, to be a lot of participation oriented. We want you to participate. So I'm going to show you a game show host, and I want you to shout out what that host's name is, as well as the game show that he hosted. All right. So are you all with me? All right. We're going to talk to each other today. So the first one is this. Let's put it up on the screen. Here he is. Oh, very good. What's the name? Right. There you go. You guys are doing great. Wheel of Fortune. Who said Wheel of Fortune? Oh, my goodness. That's Bob Barker from The Price is Right. Come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. Very good. Hopefully you're one for one. Let me give you another one. Here you go. Here's number two. There, there you go. Alex Trebek, and it is Jeopardy. Sorry, you have to phrase your answer in the form of a question. You, yeah, there you go. What, what is Jeopardy? Very good. That is the 80s version of Alex Trebek, by the way. Boy, the 80s were not good in fashion, were they? It was rough, rough, rough time. All right, here we go. Here's number three. Let's see if you've got it. Hopefully you have it. Wow. There we go. Pat Sajak. And you can never forget about Vanna White, who hasn't aged a day in her life. And that is the Wheel of Fortune. Very good. Would anybody like to buy a vowel at this time? All right, here we go. Here's the last one. A little bit more complicated. Let's see if you've got it. All right. Monty Hall and let's, let's, let's make a deal. There you go. Now, here's the cool thing about let's make a deal, which by, by the way, was my favorite. The audience would participate and they would get to participate if they dressed up in a very creative costume. It was really fun to see all the creative costumes. And, and what, what Monty Hall would do is he would give you a prize or an award and then he would make a deal with you. You can either keep the prize or keep the award or you could trade it for what is behind door number one or curtain number one, curtain number two, or curtain number three. And as a boy, I remember, all right, pick what is behind the curtains. Pick what is behind the curtains because what is behind the curtain could be something significant like a brand new car, or it could be a trip to Jamaica, or if you didn't get lucky, it could be a brand new pet llama. You just never knew what was what was behind the curtain. But I always wanted the contestants to pick what is behind the curtain. Now today, I want to introduce you to the most significant curtain in all of human history. 3,500 years ago, the nation of Israel not only wanted to see what was behind the curtain, but they wanted to experience 
what was behind the curtain or the veil. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to be starting in verse 45 and work our way through verse 51. And we're in the middle of a series called The Lamb, Making Sense of Easter. And throughout this series, we have been attempting to help you connect to Jesus in more deeper and meaningful ways, which will help us make sense of Easter, this holiday that we're going to be celebrating in just two weeks. In week number one, we learned or we were introduced to Jesus as the Lamb of God who, who rescues us from death. And we, we, we learned about the Passover Lamb and how the Passover Lamb rescued all of the firstborn Jewish uh, men and women from certain death if they chose to live under the protection and the direction of God. And so week number two, last week, Pastor Christian introduced us to Jesus as the Lamb of God who forgives sins as that daily lamb of sacrifice. And do you remember he had that bronze basin that he had out on the stage? And and such tremendous lessons we learned from the bronze basin. So we learned in in week one and week two that Israel was rescued from death. That Israel was cleansed from sin, but now they needed to be connected to God. And so today I want to introduce you to Jesus as the one who connects us to God. So let's read about this in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 51. Matthew records Jesus' final moments on the cross, and they're very significant. Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. When I was a boy, one of the earliest movies I saw watching in full length was The Wizard of Oz. It was one of the earliest memories I have of seeing a full length movie and it's has scarred me to this day has it scarred anybody else as a young boy seeing that woman going in a tornado and turning into the wicked witch on a broom has left a permanent vision in my mind that i can't get rid of those flying monkeys at the end of the movie scared me to death as a boy that moment when when dorothy and toto and the cowardly lion and the tin man and the scarecrow walk into finally that room where the the great wizard of oz was was located and they finally begin to ask and have conversations with the great wizard that moment has scared me to death, seeing that floating green head and the smoke elevating. It was an intimidating scene. And I remember those individuals walking into the room and just being scared. And, and if you remember the story, little Toto kind of wanders off into the back and, and slowly pulls back the curtain, a green curtain, only to reveal a man behind the curtain. 
And we find out in the movie that the great wizard was not a great wizard after all. It just happened to be a man behind a green curtain. Do you remember what that man said behind the curtain? He said, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Now, unlike the wizard of Oz, God wants us today to pay attention to what is behind the curtain. And Matthew records this event that we just read, and we're going to read it again because I don't want you to miss it. He says in verse 50, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, and the bodies of the many, of many holy people who had died were raised to life. You see, in order to understand the importance of the curtain being torn in two, you need to understand why the curtain was put in place to begin with. And to do that, we have to go back in time from the day that Jesus died on the cross, approximately 1,500 years in, in history, to the construction of the tabernacle that we were introduced to last week. You see, as the nation of Israel was traveling through the wilderness, God desperately wanted to have a relationship with them, to dwell among them. And so he had the nation of Israel build a tabernacle, a mobile tent, so to speak, so that he can dwell among them. And the tabernacle had an outer court, as you can see on the screen. The, the, the tabernacle was about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. In the tabernacle was, an, uh, was a courtyard, and in the courtyard was a large altar where they sacrificed animals all day long. And inside you can see the, uh, the, bronze, uh, the bronze basin that Pastor Christian talked about. But zooming in, you could see the tent within the tabernacle. And in the tent was two rooms separated by a veil or a curtain. The first room was called the holy place. The second room was called the most holy place. This is where God's presence dwelt among the people. This is a very significant place for the nation of Israel. And separating the holy place from the holy place was a curtain or a veil we have represented on the stage today that could have looked something like that. But what was behind the curtain was significant. Behind the curtain was a piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've seen Indiana Jones, the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know exactly what we're talking about. This is what he was trying to get back from the German Nazis, which I don't believe to be a true story. But, but it was just like that. That was what was behind the curtain. It was significant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the Mercy Seat. Now, we need to understand the meaning behind the curtain because it has strong application for our lives today. And I want to teach that to you. The first meaning behind the curtain is this. The curtain was ultimately designed to display the holiness of God. The curtain was designed to display the holiness of God. See, the tabernacle was de designed to show that God dwelt with his people. But the curtain was designed to display the holiness of God. We can read about it in Exodus chapter 26, verses 31 through 34. And I, uh, let's read it together. It says this, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen with a cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it, 
hang it with gold hooks on four posts standing on four pillar bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant behind the, the curtain. The, the curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place and put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. You heard the word holy mentioned several times in that passage. It was a word that has been primarily attributed to God himself. In fact, it's his primary characteristic. He is holy. In fact, the Bible emphasizes it over and over that God is holy, holy, holy. What does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be in a class by yourself. God is in a class by himself. There are no equals there aren't even any any competition. He is holy, holy, holy. And so God placed the curtain in the tabernacle to make a distinct, distinction between the sin of the people and the holiness of God. God put a curtain to make a distinction between the sin of the people and his Holiness. You see, God wanted Israel to understand that his holiness was a serious matter and that their sin was, was severe. And so like oil and water, holiness and sin just do not mix. And so he put a curtain to make a distinction between the sin of the people and the holiness of God. But the curtain was never put in place to separate himself from the people of Israel. God didn't want to separate himself from the people of Israel. He just wanted to create very clear boundaries. It was never God's desire to be separated from the nation of Israel, but rather it was his desire to create very clear boundaries so that the, so that Israel would, would be close to him, which leads us to the third point of why the veil was put in place. God designed the curtain to show the people of Israel how they were to approach God. You see, the curtain was a visual reminder of how the relationship between God and man was to function. And unfortunately, we read several stories in the Old Testament of where men and women did not take this relationship very seriously and the guidelines that God put in place uh, with this very special relationship, and it actually cost them. It cost them dearly. There's a wrong way to approach God, and there's a right way to approach God. And the wrong way we learn on how to approach God is, is, is from a story that we can learn from about Aaron's sons named Nadab and Abihu. A very interesting story. This is a great reason why you need to read the Bible because there's some really interesting stories that we can read about. Nadab and Abihu were two sons of the high priest. His name was Aaron. He was the brother of Moses. They were kind of next in line to be the next high priest for the nation of Israel. Yet they did not take their their relationship with God holy. And they are, they did not take their relationship with God seriously. They neglected the holiness of God. And so they took worship of God into their own hands and it didn't please God. And God lit them on fire. The story of Nadab and Abihu teach us the wrong way to approach God. And that is this, we cannot approach God on our terms or on our own merit. We cannot approach God on our, on our terms and on our own merit, we need to approach him on his terms. And what we learned last week is that compared to the holiness of God, we will never be good enough. 
We just can't. We just cannot be good enough compared to the holiness of God. And if perfection is a standard, then we will always, we will always fall short. So we need to learn to approach God on his terms. What's the right approach? Well, we can learn that from a man named David, who is one of the greatest kings of Israel. Israel, uh, David had spent years watching the sacrifices in the tabernacle until one day he said, let's build a permanent location for the nation of Israel to worship God. And so he made plans for a permanent location, which was called the temple. And David, even being a man after God's own heart, we are, we are given insight to the sin that was in his life. And yet David teaches us the right way to approach God. Well, what is that? Well, let's look at it in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17. David speaking to God says this, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. So how are we supposed to approach God? We can approach God when we have a broken and a humble heart. That's when we can approach God. When we have a broken and humble heart. When we're broken over the sin that's in our life. When when we're humble enough to say, God, I can't fix this on my own. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. And so God instituted a way for the nation of Israel to experience his forgiveness and his mercy. And it is celebrated in what the Jewish people call the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a very significant day in the life of every Jew. You see, atonement meant to cover or to to fully pay the necessary price. Atonement meant restitution for a wrong and restoration of a relationship. Restitution for a wrong or payment for a sin that was paid in full or meant forgiveness of of sin. Restoration of a relationship meant that uh, that a relationship between God and man was fully restored back to back to wholeness. It was a significant day for every Jewish person. And in God's economy, blood ultimately is the price to be paid for the cleansing and the forgiveness of sin. And so what took place on the Day of Atonement was very interesting. The high priest would select two goats without blemish, without any fault. He would take one of the goats and he would sacrifice that goat. And he would take the blood of the goat and he would be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. He would get to go behind the veil. One person, one time of the year would enter into the presence of God. And as he would enter into the presence of God, he would take this blood from the goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would come back out of the uh, the Holy of Holies and he would take his hands and he would uh, put them on the head of the second goat. And he would confess verbally over the head of the second goat. He would confess verbally all of the sins of the nation of Israel. But he wouldn't kill this goat. He would take this goat outside of the camp. And he would release it out into the desert. Which represented that all of the sins of the nation of Israel were removed. That their sins were forgiven. You know what they called this goat? They called this goat the scapegoat. That's where we get the, the word, the scapegoat. 
the only person who could enter the Holy of Holies through the curtain and experience the presence of God was the high priest and only on the Day of Atonement. And the strict guidelines for the Day of Atonement that meant that God was deadly serious about his holiness and his relationship with man. One false step by the high priest meant certain death. He had to follow strict standards. In fact, we read about in Exodus that the high priest actually had bells along his bottom of his coat. And when he would enter into the Holy of Holies, the bells would be ringing as long as he was still living. If the bells stopped ringing, there must have been a false misstep. Something must have gone wrong. As long as the bells were ringing, the high priest was still living. And every time I reflect upon this and this interesting ritual, it reminds me of the movie Mission Impossible. Like I can hear the music in my head of Mission Impossible when Ethan Hunt is like dangling in that room and one false move meant meant that the world was going to be destroyed. Well, for the nation of Israel, it was significant that the high priest would actually live through this because it meant their forgiveness. I'm often reminded of that as I reflect upon this story. So on the day of atonement, it was the only day, uh, it was only meant to be a temporary solution until the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus was made on the cross. And so the curtain was designed to display the holiness of God. But secondly, The second meaning behind the the curtain was this, that the curtain was torn in two to introduce the healing of humanity. Let's read it again because I don't want you to miss it this morning. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51. And when when Jesus cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He, He died. And at that moment, watch this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Which direction was the curtain torn in? Top to bottom. You see, God tore the curtain in two. God tore the curtain so that everyone can experience his presence where we can find grace and mercy. I want you to think about it for just a moment. Until the death of Jesus, only the high priest could experience the presence of God and only once per year on the day of atonement. And approximately 1,400 years had passed from the first day of atonement to the death of Jesus on the cross. And and we know the math and we know the terms of the high priest. So we can estimate that there were approximately only 50 men or less that had the opportunity to experience the presence of God. Only 50 men or so. And in an instant, at the death of Jesus on the cross... Everyone was, access, was, was given access to the presence of God. Everyone, you, me, everyone was given access to the presence of God. And why is the presence of God so important? Why is the presence of God so important? Well, the writer of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says this. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Grace and mercy are like the one-two punch for our spiritual lives. Grace is receiving the good things that we just don't deserve. 
Mercy is being spared the bad things that we do deserve. We all desire grace. We all should desire mercy. And maybe that's you today. Perhaps you walked in this, this morning and, and maybe you're watching online and you feel desperately unworthy. You're feeling guilty. You're wearing a lot of guilt on your shoulders. And you weren't even sure if you should even come to church today because of what happened last night or what happened this week. Listen, in the presence of God, you can receive grace. You can receive forgiveness. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it, but God desperately wants to give it to you if you just simply ask for it. And maybe this year is not off to a great start. Maybe, maybe you're thinking, man, this, this has been a really hard year and you're, you're already experiencing the consequences of some really poor decisions that you have made. And you're crying out, God, please have mercy on me. Would you please have mercy on, on me? Listen, in the presence of God, you can receive mercy. In the presence of God, you can receive grace. In the presence of God's immeasurable grace and inexhaustible mercy, you will experience his inexplainable peace, his inexpressible peace. I can't explain it. I only challenge you to experience it for yourself. But in the presence of God, you can experience peace. And because of this, we should celebrate. Because of this, we should celebrate. What is what, what does it mean to celebrate life behind the veil? I think we can learn four specific things as we wrap up this morning. Why do we celebrate life behind the curtain? Well, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 tell us exactly why. Watch this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open to us, for us, through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full insurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why do we get to celebrate life behind the curtain? First and foremost, foremost is that we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God. We all have access to him. We all have access to his presence. And, and we hope that you experience that every Sunday that w- when you come to JCI, whether it's through the worship experience or whether through the message, we pray that you experience the presence of God in some way. But do you know that you can experience the presence of God outside the walls of this building? You can experience the presence of God in your daily quiet time with him. If we just slow down long enough, you can experience the presence of God. Maybe you can experience the presence of God on your drive to work when you turn up that worship music really loud. You can experience the presence of God. You can experience the presence of God maybe going for an afternoon walk in the springtime. You can experience the presence of God. We can draw near to him. But secondly, we can live with assurance of our faith. 
We can live with the assurance of our faith. We can have complete confidence in the promises of God that when God makes a promise, he never ever breaks us and what God breaks it. And whatever, what, what God has accomplished in our past should give us hope for our future. We can have assurance of our faith. We can draw near to God. But thirdly, we can have a clear conscience. Perhaps this is my favorite. We can have a clear conscience. We don't have to carry the weight of guilt on our shoulders, especially if we keep a short account with God. Remember, Pastor Christian taught us about sin last week and and that we should be encouraged to have a short account with God. That means that as, as quickly as the Holy Spirit reveals a sin in your life, we should ask for his forgiveness. We should ask for his grace. We should ask for his mercy. Why? Because 1 John 1 9 tells us that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We can have a clear conscience. We can have assurance of our faith. We can draw near to God. But then fourthly, we have the tools to live righteously. We have all the tools necessary to live righteously. Righteously means a right way of living free of guilt or free of sin. Now, I'm not saying you're going to live a sinless life for the rest of your life, but you will learn to sin less. How? Because we have the tools. One of the greatest tools is God's word. David said in Psalm 119.11, your word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against you. One of our greatest sin prevention mechanisms is God's word. Would you get into the word? Would you learn it? Would you meditate on it? And then we can also have accountability with small groups. We have friends, Christian friends that can hold us accountable. The writer of Hebrews says that we should have our friends to encourage us to demonstrate love, to love our community more, to love our friends more, to love those who are far from God more, and to encourage each other to do good works, to make greater impact in our community and beyond. We have the tools to live righteously. We can live with a clear conscience. We can live in assurance of our faith, and we can draw near to God. That's why we should celebrate life behind the veil. Remember I told you that the high priest would wear bells around his gown or his robe? As long as the bells were ringing, the high priest was still living. You know, as Christians, if you're a a Jesus follower in the room today, as Christians, we wear spiritual bells. And as long as the bells are ringing, people know around us that we're still alive spiritually. If people were able to listen to your life spiritually today, would they hear the bells ringing? Would they know that you've been in the presence of God? Would they know that you're assured of your faith, that you have confidence in your faith? Would they know that you have a clear conscience because of the forgiveness of sin in your life? Would they know that you're using the tools at your disposal to live a righteous life? Would you let others know that you are spiritually alive because you've spent time in the presence of God? And we learn all of this from a 3,500-year-old curtain, from a 3,500-year-old veil. So I encourage you this week to reflect upon these thoughts. I put them in your message notes that Jesus is the lamb 
whose sacrifice provided restitution or payment for our sin and restoration of our relationship with God. That Jesus is the goat, the first goat, whose blood secured us access to the presence of God. That Jesus is the scapegoat who removes all of our sin away. That Jesus is the high priest so that we can boldly approach God with a clear conscience and a clean heart. And Jesus is the opening in the veil that invites us in to celebrate God's mercy and grace. So I don't know what weight you're carrying this morning. But would you take it to God? The curtain is open. Access to his presence is granted to you. Forgiveness is waiting, but you have to step through it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as I wrap up today?